Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with David McGlynn, the author of the new book, One Day You'll Thank Me. He also wrote a memoir in 2012, A Door in the Ocean, as well as a collection of short stories in 2008 called The End of the Straight and Narrow. David is a professor of English and of creative writing. His writing has appeared everywhere from the New York Times to Men's Health Magazine, Oprah, Parents Magazine. This guy has written a truly exceptional book about his own relationship with his father and kind of weaving that into some anecdotes from his experience as a father of his own kids. Some great insights and wisdom here into parenting and some stuff that is really consistent with what we teach here at Talking to Teens. So I can't wait to dive into all that and more. David, thank you so much for making the time to be here today. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so the book is called One Day You'll Thank Me. That's right. And it's hard to tell when all the stories are happening because you jump around and we go into your childhood and kind of this really interesting relationship with your father who moved out to California and then you then saw him four weeks out of the year. And so you kind of weave together things from that kind of storyline of your childhood to then this kind of transition phase as a father when you're kind of moving your family and getting situated at your new job as an English professor there and, you know, quirky little anecdotes of being a father. And so I wonder why this book and what inspired you to write it? So, I mean, I guess I can say a a couple of things and I'll I'll maybe first talk about what inspired me to do it. So there, there is a bit of a story about why I decided to do it. So One Day You'll Thank Me is my third book. First book was a book of stories that came out in 2008. Second one was a memoir that took a long time to complete and had to go through a number of revisions. And that came out in 2012. And that's called A Door in the Ocean. And A Door in the Ocean um, is a very different kind of book. It's in many ways a very dark book Mm -hmm. because it's about the triple homicide of my closest friend and his father and brother when I was a kid in Texas, when I was about 15 years old, when I was a sophomore in high school. And I won't say a whole lot about that book, except to say that following that horrible event, I moved to California and I get very drawn toward my dad and my stepmom's sort of newfound evangelical Christianity, Mm. largely because I'd gone through something so profound. And I, you know, I was really searching for some Mm. sort of way to find answers. And my stepmother had been a children's pastor and a missionary for a long time. My dad, this was all kind of new. So anyway, that's a pretty heavy book to write. And it took a long time. And I had to sort of really work my way around a number of different versions before I figured out what I was doing with that book and how it was going to work. Sure. When I finished it, I was thinking I need to do something that's lighter. You know, I needed um, I, I needed a break. Yeah, right. Um, and so by the time A Door in the Ocean finishes, my kids are about 
you know, seven years old, eight years old, mm. like they're starting to kind of grow. And I found myself kind of thinking back about when they were little, which is where a door in the ocean ends is when the kids are babies. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm driving in my car one day and it's close to Christmas time and I'm listening to all of these Christmas stories that they play on NPR right around yeah. Christmas time. And David Sedaris has one and Ron Carlson has one. Sure, yeah. And I thought I'd love to tell one of those kinds of funny Christmas stories. Yeah. And so there I am in the car and I'm driving around and it's a cold day. And I find myself sort of telling this little story in my ear yeah, yeah, right. about how my father every year would give us like the world's worst Christmas presents. And and one after the other, you know, <laughs> they were bad. And I had this line, right? It wasn't as though he was ignorant of gift giving. It wasn't though he was ignorant of style or incapable of picking up on hints. It's as though Christmas presents like defied some kind of inner logic. <laughs> he, he never could quite get this right. And on one hand, he meant well. On the other hand, like they just were absurd, you know. And right. it became kind of a joke between us that we had these absurd gifts that would get exchanged. So I started writing about that. I started making a list of all this like crazy stuff that we'd get. And it would be, you know, as you've read. Cheese platter. A, a cheese sampler. <laughs> The spaghetti and the sauce, you know, like all this sort of crazy, like, you know, useless stuff. Three foot sausage. Sausage. Yeah, the big big hickory farm sort of two foot sausage that my roommates just, uh, you know, turned into a prop for all kinds of weird acts. You know, and on one hand, I would go home from Christmas feeling like dejected. On the other hand, you know, and my dad seemed to understand this, Mm. is I never, I never wanted the stuff in the first place. What I wanted was time yeah. you know and what i wanted was to spend time in the ocean with him and kind of walking around in the hills and my real memories of being a kid were not about the presence they were about the time and mm-hmm. it struck me that my sons didn't have such a different relationship to their stuff as much as they wanted the stuff what they really wanted and what they really seemed the most satisfied by was the mm-hmm. time so i was just trying to tell that one story to sort of divert my attention from all this heavy stuff. Right. Made. And it made me laugh. And it made me feel like I had told something true. And I was able to publish it, you know. And a, and a nice magazine, Men's Health Magazine, picked it up, which really surprised me. Hmm. You know, I'd been published in other places, but to have a big men's magazine. And, you know, President Obama had been on the cover of Men's Health um, about a year and a half before my article appeared when he was running for president. So this sort of big men's magazine, I was very impressed that I got into yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, it's read definitely by guys. You know, there's lots of workout tips. And, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so then, you know, I started to get emails from people, from guys who read the magazine, saying, this reminded me of my yeah. dad. And they would have a funny story to tell. And I didn't mm. get hundreds, but I got I got a fair bit. Yeah. You know, And it struck me that... That there is at least a little bit of a nerve that for all the ways in which mental health promotes, you know, working out. And, masculinity. And yeah, right. Masculinity. A lot of the readers had a kind of soft side, you know, and they, they wanted to connect with something. Mm. So I thought, I'm going to try to write another one of these. What other stories could I tell? Oh. You know, and if you look around kids you, you have a million different examples of things that need your attention yeah right? uh, what do you do when they learn how to swear yeah, right. you know, do you laugh at it do you let it go do you laugh at it and try to teach them something which is a great anecdote in the book where your son calls his brother an ass 
And then you and your wife are trying to keep a straight face because it's like so adorable yeah. <laughs> listening to this little kid say ass. But uh, your wife is trying to stop laughing and, you know, do the discipline thing. But because, right, it's yeah. like it's cute and it's like hard to deal with. What do you do? So it's this cute story and it's funny. But, you know, we started to hear them say it more and mm. more. Right. And then, you know, in that chapter, Hayden, you know, who was only like five at the time gets in trouble in kindergarten for swearing. Yeah. You know? So he's saying these bad words. Okay, now we have to address it. How do I do it? You know, and I tried the sort of old school trick of washing his mouth out with soap, <laughs> but he won't do it until I demonstrate that this can be done. And I end up sort of washing out my own mouth with soap. You know? <laughs> so I sort of bumble my way into like cleaning out my own mouth itself. I mean, I, could, I can't believe it, you know? So, you know, I'll finish the sort of the story, which is as these pieces added up, I had a critical mass, sure, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. once you have the pieces, you think, I've got a story that I'm telling. And it dawned on me that I was telling the same story again and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is trying to connect with them, trying mm. to understand fatherhood, trying to also understand sonhood from yeah. my perspective and from theirs. And to see how they're all interconnected. And that's what made me sort of like go and put this book together. And, you know, there's a scene, and I'll I'll sort of finish with this, is there's the moment I say in the first chapter that I would often talk to my dad on the payphone outside the supermarket. And so when, you know, I was young, he and I weren't able to talk as often as we wanted. And so I would call and talk to him. At home, but I also would talk to him from kind of around the world. You know, I'd be out by the supermarket and I'd call him collect. I'd be at school and I'd call him collect. And we'd talk for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and then I'd have to go. Uh, Or he'd have to go. And it sort of dawned on me that as I had all these moments sort of knit together, that I was kind of having a series of payphone conversations with my sons and also Mm -hmm. with myself as I tried to learn my way through what it means to be a good dad. It also is a way of of revisiting what it meant to be the son of a dad who was trying to do the same kind of thing, even though he wasn't with us all the time. Your relationship with your own dad is kind of how you sort of start the book and is really strong throughout it. And you mention in there that you never lied to your dad about anything. And there's like a scene where you've just been dumped by your first college girlfriend at UC Irvine and you're, you know, on your dad's floor. Like you guys are, I think, drinking schnapps or something. I think that that's rare. Uh, You know, there's researchers who have looked at uh, teen truthfulness and it's like the number of teens who say they lie to their parents about stuff is like 96%, right? So, I mean, it's it's a a very small minority. And I wonder what you think it was was it just because he was like so scarce that it made you like place so much value on it or what was it that made you have such an open relationship Uh, you know i can say a bit about that which is you know i was not a sort of george washington you know i cannot tell a lie kind of kid right i think i was very much a normal uh you know willing to lie if i needed to (laughs) yeah sort of child and and adolescent, right? And I got in trouble for it at school once or twice in the same way that my own kids have. The difference with my dad was, in part, his scarcity, as you mentioned. It also was the medium of our communication, you know? Mm -hmm. It was the fact that we were talking by phone, 
You know, and there's an essayist uh, whom I know and really admire uh, named Megan Dom. And mm-hmm. she has an essay called On the Fringes of the Physical World, which she talks about dating the guy by phone. And she talks about the kind of erotic distance produced by the phone. Huh. You know, and I think that even though my my phone conversations with my dad weren't in any ways erotic, there's a kind of analogy there, right? There's a mm-hmm. kind of truthfulness that was able to happen, almost like I was in a confessional booth because mm. he was not physically there. He was he was physically separated from me by the telephone. Yeah. He also took a lot of pains to not judge whatever it was I had to tell him. Yeah. You know? And I can give you an example. When I was in high school, I think, you know, we all have our first car stories, right? I had this first really crappy 1980 Honda that I had bought uh, that I think had been like underwater, right? Like the, the rug <laughs> smelled on the floor of the car. And sure. it was having a leak in the radiator. And I had just been in chemistry class where we were talking about the way that salt kept water from boiling until a much higher temperature. Ah, okay. So I decided that instead of going to the store and buying antifreeze, I would just mix up some salt water and put it in my car radiator, you know, all of 16 years old. Smart. And my my stepdad and my my grandfather, they, they thought I had somehow like you know, someone was out to get me, like someone at school had told me this and that someone was trying to like wreck my car. And they couldn't quite fathom that I had just made this like really immature and erroneous <laughs> assumption. You know? So I felt awful that I had somehow wrecked the car and also that I'd been so, I'd been so reprimanded. And mm. I called my dad to tell him and he was very calm about it, you know. Uh, what does salt do to rubber, David? He said, and I, you know, I said, well, it corrodes. And he's like, well, that's what'll happen. We'll flush it out. And basically, you know, it was an old crappy car. And what's the worst that happens? It's broken down, right? I mean, like, yeah, yeah, right. And it's a lesson that you'll then learn. And you know. I, I never, I never did that again. I, I would imagine not. Yeah, right. And so he was, you know, he was and he is calm. I still think to this day I could call him and say almost anything and he mm. would receive it patiently and calmly. And for that reason, he's someone I still call and talk to. But a lot of it has to do with the medium, with talking on the phone. You know, when, when you and I were younger, like we spent probably a lot more time on the phone yeah. talking. Teens now probably text more often and Snapchat and that kind of thing. Yeah. But there is a kind of openness that can happen with a little bit of that physical remove that's a lot easier than when you're face to face. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like safer or something. Yes. Or there's a little bit of an anonymity that makes it, um, it doesn't feel like as revealing or you don't feel as vulnerable um, sharing things or something like that. Yeah. So I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to talk about in this book. So I'd love to jump to a couple of the things. One of them is you have this great chapter in there about using a shower rod to keep keep your son in his bedroom. I love this chapter because there's like a page in there where you kind of go on this really philosophical little tangent. And basically the story is just that this kid like won't stay in his room and you try everything. I mean, you're propping chairs under the, it's like, you just need to get him to go to bed. And it's like, oh, first you try like, you know, sleeping in bed with him until he falls asleep. You know, if I just lay here with him until he falls asleep, then that's okay. But this kid will stay up for hours and you're sitting there in his bed. And so there's like shoving stuff under the door and nothing is working because this kid just will bust through. And then finally you find the shower rod that 
a shower. Uh, you know, it goes across the hallway and, and it's one of those telescoping you know, ones that you can change the length and you get it to just the perfect length that you can shove it across the hallway so it props the door shut. But you have this positive spin on it that I love, which was, you know, you're, you're sitting down in the living room listening to your kid like banging on the door up there. And you, you have this moment of realizing that like, yeah, it might be me right now that he's rebelling against, but that untamable spirit of rebellion, sooner or later, it's going to be the world that's trying to keep him down. And doggone it, that kid is going to like be out there knocking down doors. And that spirit that you're kind of like having trouble with right now, you realize is actually going to serve him so well later on. And everyone's talking about grit, but then as parents, we like try to suppress it almost and so it was cool at the same time as you were like doing everything you could to try to keep him in his room there's like a voice in the back of your head that's going keep fighting kid and i I love that and i wonder what inspired it yeah so that's very much a chapter about raising boys yeah and and i mean that in a couple of different ways right one is that when we we moved here and we had these kids and we we moved to Wisconsin in 2006 and my older son was 2 and my younger son was born here mm-hmm. and i teach at a small college and most of the other colleagues didn't have children until a couple of years later and so they often were these disproportionate ages mm-hmm. um and it often was the case that we had boys when, when colleagues and friends had girls and so we would sort of go places and have these big you know, sort of rowdy, rambunctious, and energetic boys. I often felt this divide between what it means to have a boy versus what it means to have a girl. Uh, And those gender divisions aren't set in stone, right? I don't want to sort of oversubscribe to them, but there was a certain sense. And I often felt like, I often feel like even now, that there is this desire to make kids behave. And I know I certainly have it myself, right? We go places, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to have kids that are going to be, you know, too wild or too disrespectful. Meltdown in the middle of the store or restaurant or whatever. Yeah, and, you know, they're fighting or they're, you know, throwing darts at each other or, you know, and we've had kind of all those things happen. Well, and of course, because then everyone's looking at you going, God, get your kids under control. Like, what kind of a parent is this guy, right? Where actually maybe the lesson that the kid needs is to have the meltdown right now, but everyone's going to judge you. I mean, it's hard, right? And to bleed it out, right? Because our boys are big for their ages, they often were seen as older than Mm. they really were. And, you know, this is the sort of, you know, more sociological thing of it is we're in this complicated moment now when it comes to thinking about masculinity and boyhood. And there's sort of the adult masculinity about the troubles that men are getting into. But I, I think we also have a kind of, ongoing conversation about what boys are supposed to do and what boys are supposed to be. Those aren't always easy conversations to have. And I've often felt like there is this impulse, none of which are linear or or unilateral. They're always sort of conflicting and overlapping, that boys somehow need to be corralled, you know. And as a friend of mine said, who is an elementary school teacher, like there's often an impulse to medicate the energy out of them, to mitigate their spiritedness or whatever because they can sometimes have trouble settling down you know my wife is a social worker Uh, i teach at a college i wouldn't say we're the most politically active but we're not the least either and we do try to think about you know how are we teaching our sons to think about their positions in the larger world Hmm. you know and moreover how do we sort of take what is there in front of us and move it in a direction that is going to be it's going to be useful. We're here with 
David McGlynn talking about his new book, One Day You'll Thank Me. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Determination and ferocity and grit will also translate to working for a cause, to working hard just to learn math and social studies, you know, to become the true selves that they're supposed to be. Wherever I've gone, I've noticed that kids' sports, especially for boys, but not exclusively anymore, have this way of sort of taking over. People become, Mm. you know, you can say nuts on one hand, but let's just say they become really zealous. And it feels as though everything is sort of riding on these things. Basketball up here in Wisconsin is a huge deal. You know, not every school has a swimming pool, but every school has a basketball court. Sure. And with the long winters, there's a lot of basketball being played. And my son is tall and he's, you know, this is Galen, the older son. He's tall, he's athletic, he's energetic. And he seemed a natural fit, all except for the fact that it wasn't making him happy. Hmm. And therein lies the friction, you know. Your body seems ready for it. But your emotions aren't there. And, and how as a father, how as a parent, do you balance sort of teaching them to buck up anyway yeah. versus do the thing that really makes them happy? That's parenthood, right? Yeah. Uh, sometimes you have to be willing to be flexible. And as principled as you want to be, you have to be willing to meet your children as people and meet them where they are. Yeah. That became a most important thing for me. As a parent, you know, you are constantly negotiating between your principles, those things that you value and that you want to make sure that your children know and internalize versus your own need to sort of help them become happy and fulfilled. And that sometimes you have to flex a little bit. You know, my wife and I talk about this all the time and talk to the boys. We want them to be happy which I think is a product of being content with your place in the world, but also successful, which is a product of having the confidence to know that you can meet and respond to challenge. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.